it's time to hit record and talk about movies. Are you there and ready to talk with me, Jamie? I am here and ready, but don't sing well with headphones on. And so I'm not confident about how this sounds. Have you ever gone to church? Yeah. Did you sing the hymns? I sang my heart out. I believe it. <laughs> I could see your feet like raising up into the air. Like that's how hard you're singing. No, you can't see my feet, but you can see them because you know CP. So you're inferring what's off camera right now. No, I'm saying I can picture in my mind you at church singing hymns and getting so into it that your feet start lifting up. So when I went to Catholic school, we used to sing mass like multiple times a year, probably probably once every two months or more, depending on the frequency of Catholic holidays and bull- bullshit that we would always sing. And And I remember I used to have to sit with the teachers because I was a teacher's pet, but then also because for some reason I couldn't sit with the rest of the kids. Uh, like aisle seats were too inaccessible and yada, yada, yada density of the crowd. So they would just be like, no, it's okay, Jamie, just come over here and sit on the bench, like with your teacher and probably the principal. And so from there, I would like belt my, I would belt out songs like a big religious loser. And like, I remember one time in grade five, like the most popular kid in my class, who was also my friend and is still my friend. Cool brag. I was friends with the most popular kid in my class. (laughs) No, but it was like, no, I I didn't like, we were kind of like secretly friends because I was a huge dork and he was a hockey player. It was a secret among you or you were secretly his friend, but he didn't know it. Well, no, I guess like the rest of the school didn't know that I was friends with him, probably. Interesting. Okay. I mean, this is I'm probably embellishing like him and I used to uh, school at the oral communications competitions from grade four to seven. And so that's how we became friends. But and you still you still hang out with him? I see him every once in a while. He's like a professor and he's like very successful and affluent and fun to talk to. The point of this whole story is that one time he laughed at me while I was belting out Catholic hymns during like mass in primary school. And so I stopped singing. And then I met you and you sing every five seconds. And then I started singing again. I'm glad that I could make that happen for you. It's very cathartic. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Do you sing in the shower? I do. But people sing in the shower because of the echoey nature of the shower, right? I think so. It's also just fun you have your own little portable microphone looking hand handheld yeah but the thing is like you never take a shower alone you always true yeah you always have a platonic companion but we can harmonize here's the thing though do you ever shower like or get assistance to shower from a cool person who joins you in your shower hymns so yeah you like if it's a really cool person who wants to sing I'll sing while they're scrubbing me down. Mm. But then I realized that that can be kind of strange for some people. Yeah. When you're like scrubbing someone down and they're like, 
Ain't no sunshine. And then they're just like, okay. <laughs> Ain't no sunshine near my balls. Yeah, I don't do that. This is probably a good thing you don't have attendance. That shower you. <laughs> you should probably scrub away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ain't no sunshine near my balls. Yeah. It's a shame how something, something. Why was it that you were so upset about us talking about buttholes so much? <laughs> um, sometimes what happens in my showers is the attendant will leave for a bit to go get stuff set up. And I'll just sit in the shower soaking. And that's my time to shine. That's your time to sing? That's that's where I really belt it out and have a full one-man show. Well, I think like you should find an attendant who wants to harmonize with you in the shower. So it just depends on the person. So, sorry, what depends? Like, what quality does the person need to possess to sing with you in the shower? Well, and the desire... But it, like, if they're bad, if they're like a bad singer or they sing bad lyrics, like, do you? Um... This isn't an episode of The Voice. <laughs> like, I'm not. I don't sing well as it is, so I'm not judging their singing abilities. <laughs> I'm not like you're out of tune. Please leave. Yeah, yeah. Imagine you're like next. <laughs> I'm like, can you turn my chair away from you? <laughs> You're like, you're not going to Hollywood. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Ain't no sunshine near my balls. I'm not not playing this again. Okay, but I had another lyric I wanted to add. We always talk about how it's necessary to keep it clean down there and how people don't do a good enough job. Yeah, but it also feels rude to bring Bill Withers into this. (laughs) The man is as wholesome as it gets. I guess so. So... I appreciate a good parody, but I don't think Bill Withers would be sitting there humming along to our parody. I respect the dude too much to be singing his songs about my boss. I'm pretty sure Bill Withers would harmonize with you in the shower. Yeah, but not about my balls. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Bill Withers, let's know. Is there anyone you would let harmonize with you about your balls? Um, what about uh, the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm? Larry David? No, no not Larry David, no. What? Uh, uh, what's his fucking JB Smooth? Uh, I'm not a big fan. Are you serious? I like him as a comedian, but him in Curb is just too much. He throws Larry off in the perfect possible way. He's like, he's like the perfect... Um, it's good in the show for the dynamic, mm-hmm. but like... How was your day, Tony? It was good. It was busy. It was stressful. Yeah, I can kind of tell. Yeah, do I seem high strong? Well, I'm just like... I'm trying to be goofy, but you're not really game for it at all right now, and that's rare. That doesn't seem fair at all. That, you, that you're not goofy? I know. You should be more goofy. <laughs> Is it because I told you I didn't want to sing Bill Withers a second time about my balls. It could be about my balls. I don't care. About your balls then? <laughs> okay, fine. No more Bill Withers. James Brown, maybe. I feel like he could get down with it. That's true, yeah. Bill Withers just seems like almost like a father figure to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's full, yeah. I don't know. Also, like, he's 
that's like my my secret, like my sacred music, you know? Mm. Ain't No Sunshine is a song that I can play. I want to see any Bill Withers song is a song that I can play when I just like need like an emotional break. A break. Yeah, just like like a timeout for a second and like when things get too stressful or dark, I can listen to Bill Withers and it's just like, oh yeah, okay, things are okay. But like James Brown, he could harmonize with me about my boss. So you're saying that when you're parodying an artist who can so deftly kind of capture all the dimensions of heartache, you feel a little bit guilty and it feels sort of inappropriate, like interrupting an affluent public speaker or or like a smart person. I don't want to squash your creativity, but ain't no sunshine by my balls. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a sacred. How, How about this? I'll let you sing another verse. No, it's fine. I don't need to. I guess you could say it would be like if you created a Radiohead parody called Shwarma Police or something stupid like that. Shwarma Police. The fuck a pickled turnips. Waste of time. Yeah, I don't. I, what's your take on shawarma? Shwarma is delicious. The shaved meat log is just so perfectly seasoned and tender. I feel like I'm not allowed to dislike it. That's true. You're going to get swarmed by a, like a gaggle of Lebanese bros. Or get shawarmaed? Yeah, you'll get shawarmaed. So you'll just throw a shawarma platter in your face with all the fixings. I like falafel. Falafel has the word awful in the name. Wait, you don't like falafel? I don't mind it. I just wanted to point out that phonetic thing. Oh, okay. Should we restart the podcast? I feel like I really dampened your mood with my Bill Withers nonsense. I don't, I, I'm sorry that you, I, I feel fine. <laughs> Maybe it's just the getup you're wearing. You look like you're in a mafioso jumpsuit or something. Oh, because of the zipper? Yeah, it looks like a jumpsuit. Like one of the tracksuit onesies that uh, Christopher Moltisanti would wear while he's chasing some Russian through the pine trees. Oh, geez. Yeah. I wouldn't be a very effective mobster. I guess not. Should we call it? <laughs> call what? The episode. You want to end it there? Yeah, let's end it there. All right. Goodbye, guys. I had a weird day today. You want to hear about it? Yeah. I found out that someone I'm fairly close to, uh, who I talk to on the daily basis uh, and have a mutual respect for, like professionally, is leaving his role. And it's making me sad. You found this out today? I did. Well, I knew about it, but it became real today. The wheels were set in motion. And so I'm just, I've been thinking more and more about like what friendships are in adulthood and how they come about sort of unexpectedly. And I've had more FaceTime with people that I'm ostensibly not personal with than those who are close friends. And so when they, when uh, professional acquaintances leave, It's quite jarring. It's like you sort of realize how your social landscape has changed and it starts to make you sort of evaluate some of your decisions uh, around that part of your life, if you know what I'm saying. I think also part of it is just that you spend, you know, 40 hours a week with people that you are essentially being paid to spend time with, but then naturally by, by way of proximity and forced closeness, 
you develop some kind of connection with them. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much inevitable. The people that you keep close and that you talk to on a frequent basis, like, do you find that you keep their headspace sort of in yours quite a bit? If that makes sense. If they're happy, I'm happy. Yeah. Or like, you know, the people you care about, you sort of, uh, you devote a certain amount of mental headspace to their outlook or their worldview or their problems. Does that happen to you? Yeah. Like the people I'm close to, if they're going through something, then I feel like I'm going through it with them. That's what I mean. Yeah. It depends on what it is. Like, uh, for some reason, it's usually bad stuff more than good stuff. Mm. Like if, if one of my friends is winning something, like celebrating something, mm-hmm. unless I'm actively there with them celebrating the thing, it's hard for me to hold on to that. But if if like I hung out with a friend yesterday and then they told me that some bad thing is their life is happening, I would carry that through my night and then think about it the next day. More so than if I... If they told me this great thing is happening, mm-hmm. I think because I have this tendency to want to solve people's problems, including my own. Mm-hmm. So when something bad happens, I'm I, I go onto like a hyper track of trying to figure out how I can solve it for them or make make something better. Whereas if they're celebrating a win, then I'm winning. I'm like celebrating with them, and then I leave, and I'll still be happy the next day. But it's not like a consuming thought. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a problem that you're trying to parse. Yeah. Just like any problem you might be working on at work or something, you have a tendency to let it linger or work through it in the background. Do you feel that your coworker leaving is affecting your mental state? Kind of, yeah. Is that why you so desperately wanted to talk about Bill Withers and your boss? Um... I wouldn't say desperately. Um, I would say that. <laughs> what am I trying to get at with this anecdote about the about people leaving? Sometimes there's this strange feeling when something you think is a fixture in your life disappears. I have that a lot with attendance. You know, like they'll be around and I kind of eventually take them for granted and they're a part of my everyday or every week life. Yep. And then they're like, hey, I'm leaving. And I have to go through this mental thing where I, I'm like, good for you for moving on. That's great for you. But then I'm like, I have to stop myself from spiraling about, you know, my place in that being like feeling somehow stagnant because they're moving on and I'm still here. Mm. And also, you know, obviously with disability change is difficult because there are already so many things outside of one's control. And so when something changes, it's just like another thing that you have to be ready to process. Yeah, change is difficult because stability is equally as difficult. Exactly. So when you when you attain some kind of consistency, you want to keep it, even if said consistency may not be good for you. Exactly. And I notice that a lot, and maybe you're also feeling this, where you're not as much able to separate yourself from it and go, oh, this is a good thing. Because it puts me in a position where I have to adapt and thrive and evolve. And I'm also happy for the other person. It's just the fear and like all the negative stuff creeps in. For sure. Yeah. There's like, there are events in your life where there's like a before and an after. And usually those events are cornerstones 
like before university and after university, before your girlfriend and after your girlfriend, before this job and after the job and who you are. That's interesting. I don't ever think of it like that, but I can see how, yeah, before Christ and after Christ. <laughs> I guess I guess this person who's leaving sort of like uh, takes up a lot of space in my like mental model of my impression of my workplace. Yeah. In their absence, I'm going to have to do some refactoring and also potentially step into some of the roles that they fulfilled. And so it's like a kind of call to action in one sense, but then it's also a pull in a different direction because maybe I want to follow suit with them or maybe I don't, I don't know. But it's just interesting to me only because I've had more of a reaction to it than I anticipated. Yeah. It's also just the unknown, right? You're not, you're not sure what it means for you, what it means for your role, what it means for your life. Mm -hmm. And then all of those things become problems that kind of bubble up to the surface and now you have to deal with them. Sort of forces me out of a, a particular comfort zone, potentially. Yeah. So it's just new and scary, blah, blah, blah. This is a lot of words to try to express that. No, I, I totally think that's relatable. I think that the most I can relate to it recently is with, you know, I have had coworkers leave as well, but it has a different, it's a different impact when an attending leaves. And even though like, I don't know, because you form like a, like you're saying that, that like adult friendship where, because an attendant is similar to a colleague in that they are there and you do gain some closeness over time by nature of the work and the dynamic. But at the same time, when they leave, you kind of realize that it is just a job and like the number of attendants. I, I do have a lot of friends, a lot of my really close friends who had been attendants for me in the past and we developed a closeness and then they've left or I've left or whatever. And we remained close after that. But then there's also a way higher number of attendants who you feel like you're close and then they leave and then you never talk to them again. Yeah. I think there's this like general illusion of stability that one can prepare for change or that one can anticipate how much impact a change will have on them. And that just kind of isn't true. You don't often recognize that things have evolved until the previous status quo is different. And it forces you to look at yourself yeah, and to go, am I changing in a way that I'm satisfied with? For sure. Yeah. There's all kinds of changes happening lately, like from a macro perspective, culturally and interpersonally with everything that's going on in the world. So I think this is totally relatable to people, but. Well, even on a more micro level, everyone I think can relate to the ebbs and flows of interpersonal connections. You know, even just when your friend has a kid, maybe you might you might have a harder time staying close to them just by nature of the busyness of parenting and the responsibilities. Yeah. It's like when, uh, when I find out my friend has a, has a kid lately, like this has happened two or three times over the last six or seven years. I find out my buddy 
is having a kid and I'm happy for them. And I know that I will see them intermittently and periodically, but it feels much the same as them going away to college or university or moving because it's like, even though they are still geologically proximal or whatever the fuck, like they are essentially going off to school to learn how to raise a human and their lives will be monopolized with that task and responsibility for the next 25 years minimum, you know? And, and so it's like, it is a kind of weird mourning or like grief because you're like, Oh, well they are changing for the better, but irreversibly now. And there is that sort of fear of falling behind or missing out or whatever. And I know that's embellished by disability quite a bit because we never quite know if the traditional phases of life uh, will be available to us. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should go back to singing about your balls in the shower. Yeah, well, I was trying to keep it on Bill Withers and my balls, but you were insisting upon weightier subjects. I think what it was, I I, I was trying to think about it because I'm like, wait, am I, am I being grumpy? And I apologize if I was. I honestly wasn't trying to be. But I think... I had an exceptionally packed work day full of like various face-to-faces where I'm trying to like remain professional and keep myself like this professional mask. But there's no way you look at me and my stupid face and think remain professional. No, but it's sometimes, I guess, I guess I had a hard time like switching, like literally right up until we hit record, I was like writing a document for or something. And so like... Like a technical document? Yeah. Those are the worst. So it was hard to switch gears. And that's on me. I apologize. No, it's fine. I wish that there was some kind of AI that could be fed like a code base or a schematic or some like formal definition of a system and just generate the documentation on on the fly, like, you know, for more left-brained people. I wish all technical documentation could be done at IKEA factories. So when people are just like, how do I install this thing? I just draw a fat man with an X through it. And then that's like, have you ever seen the IKEA manuals? Right, right. You're saying that IKEA's visual grammar is super effective at like conveying instructions. They built some furniture. They give it to their toddler and they're like, here, make a manual for this. Did you know, like, you know how people love Ikea's Swedish meatballs? Yeah. Have you ever had them? Yeah, they're okay. Can Yeah, like, those are probably meatballs you could eat without attendants having to cut them into micro, micro uh, spoonfuls. They don't, I don't go out of my way to get them, but they're fine. But did you know that when you go to the cafeteria specifically to eat them, you actually have to assemble your own table? <laughs> Oh, yeah? It does it come with instructions? <laughs> it does, yeah. Do you have to also assemble the meatballs? <clears throat> no, thankfully. They come pre-cooked. But the but if you visit the IKEA kitchen, like, all of the recipe books are just, like, shitty uh, hieroglyphic diagrams. Yeah, it's like a picture of a horse plus a picture of a cow equals a meatball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have to figure out the steps. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, exactly. That's cool. For anyone out there who's never been to Ikea, they're going to go to the cafeteria with like some Allen keys and a screwdriver 
expecting to have to put their table together. Mm-hmm. And it's even harder for wheelies because you have to build one of those tables that is like extra large and has no spot for a chair. Well, now that standing desks have become such a big deal, it's easier to just buy a standing desk and then adjust it to the right height. I hate standing desks because they tend to prompt those stupid water cooler conversations about how sitting too long causes cardiovascular problems in uh, middle adulthood. And you hate those conversations because you know you can't stand. Yeah, like they're and I'm in the peripheral and they're like, did you know you're going to die if you keep sitting like that? And like, I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Nobody's ever said that to you. No, 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 not to me specifically, but to the stupid asshole who's eventually going to get a standing desk. Like everyone's fear mongering about the consequences of sitting. And I just, it's so annoying. You think they should stop selling standing desks because they're ableist? No, of course not. I'm just saying that I'm really tired of the rhetoric around how revolutionary and important standing desks are. Did your workplace actually have a water cooler? Yes, it has two. Like a literal water cooler that people congregate around? Yes, I live in northwestern Ontario, so the office much resembles like the 90s. It's very much like Dilbert office. That sounds really depressing. Well, that's why I have to go to back to go back to work prematurely and without a evolved work from home plan. Maybe that's why you shouldn't go back to work. <laughs> Pwned. I I don't think I've ever been to a workplace with a water cooler. Really? Yeah. Have you ever used a water cooler? It seems silly to me. Why not just go to the tap? It seems hard to load it. Yeah. It's very, very weird. Gravity is fun. I like gravity. Mm-hmm. We haven't said anything yet, I feel like. No, we really haven't had any insights. No. Is it possibly because we are uninspired by the movie we watched today? I guess that's possible. What movie did we watch? We watched uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Is this a disability movie? Yes. Agreed. Were you completely uninspired by it? No. I wasn't completely uninspired by it, but I thought it would be more relevant than it was. Mm, Interesting. I was surprised how hard it was to remember the musical numbers less than 12 hours after viewing the film. Yeah, they didn't really stick with me at all. Uh, Little Mermaid has stuck with me over 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, when I'm feeling lonely lately, like because of COVID isolation and bullshit, I immediately think I want to be where the people are. There is an I want to be where the people are song in this one, though. What's it called again? What's it called? There's a number that Quasimodo sings after his guardian tells him he's ugly and stupid. (laughs) And that's the one where he's like, I want to go outside for a day. Yeah, he's like, I want to, I want to, if I could go down there, I would have so much more fun than they do. Have you ever thought that? Like, I bet you I'd be so much better at being able-bodied than these able-bodied people. I, I guess so, yeah. I have. Because you take pleasure in the simplest things. Like, How long do you think that lasts? The rest of your life? Easily the rest of my life. Easily. Yeah, I think so too. When I find a shirt that disguises my hip dysplasia, I'm like, I will wear you until I die. <laughs> I'm like grateful to that shirt. Yeah. I think I'd be really good at being able-bodied. Oh, for sure. The thing is, I think I'd put a lot too much pressure on myself. 
to be good at it. So like I'd I'd be like tired and my bones would be sore and my hips would be sore and my knees would be sore. And I'd be like, I have to go jogging. Yeah, I have to skate to work every day on the canal. Yeah, I work at home, but I have to skate around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have to do four laps around the river every day. Yeah. And you'd you'd be like a CrossFit champion. I don't know. The other thing that might happen is I would just be so excited that I could feed myself. Yeah. That I would become 800 pounds. Well, maybe you'd you'd gain like the freshman able-bodied like 35 pounds. And then, yeah. and then, and then the fun would become losing it, like being active enough to lose it. Yeah, that would, it would be a. It would be funny if, like, you became able-bodied, and then you got contacted by Marvel Studios, and they like wanted to cast you in a new superhero film because the, like, the true story of your life sort of mirrors that of like, like a a a superhero discovering their pat powers and like. Oh, yeah, the number of talks you'd have to do of, like, what do you think did it? How do you think you were able to overcome your disability? Mm -hmm. And you just having to be like, I played a wheel breaker with my friend on a podcast. Yeah. But then they're like, no, like, do you you think it was, like, you manifested this somehow? And you'd be like, no, like, a mineral rock from the moon fell into Earth's atmosphere and went straight up my nose while I was sleeping. I ate some bad guacamole and it seemed to be a good decision. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I regained all the elasticity in my brain and all my stroke symptoms went away. Uh, Even if if my disability was cured tomorrow, my body's so fucked now. What are you talking about? Like, like... My my legs don't straighten all the way anymore. Oh. I'd have to have so many surgeries to be able to walk, even if my muscles could handle it again. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I'm being too realistic about this. Yeah, I do. Like, like the consequences of sitting for most of your life. Yeah, like if I cured your CP tomorrow, uh-huh. you still wouldn't be able to just get up and start walking around. Yeah, I'd still have like an arthritic right shoulder and like Yeah, your your spine would be all off, your hips would be misaligned. You'd probably be looking to sit down. Hamstrings would be tighter than a nun's asshole. And like, yeah, it would be bad. Sorry, did I shock you? A little. I'm just trying to <laughs> wasn't really prepared to think about how tight a nun's asshole is. What if nuns just take big shits? I'm talking about the prudish ones that slap you with a ruler in school. I know, but I'm just saying, you know, there are other ways to stretch your thoughts. Now you're just trying to overcompensate for being not a goof earlier. I for sure am. (laughs) What the hell were we just talking about? Nuns buttholes. No. Yeah. Before that. I don't remember. That's all I remember. <laughs> oh, if I became able-bodied tomorrow, I'd still have a fuck ton of issues to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. But I mean, it's nothing that rigorous physiotherapy and a stairmaster and some. I'd have to get surgeries for sure. Yeah, like like to lengthen your hamstrings and like to straighten my neck out, to straighten my wrists out. Yeah, like all my tendons have shrunk so. I'd have to get surgeries on like every, it would be miserable. It would be. 
I think about it like elective surgeries to improve quality of life all the time. Yeah. And I dread them. I fucking dread them. Because you're sort of approaching the one, right? Well, I yeah, I could if I probably should, given the kinds of pain I'm in lately, because it's all... Well, if you don't soon, do you think you could easily be Quasimodo for Halloween? I am Quasimodo. I'm the... T- I'm the twisted spine of, uh, I'm the twisted spine of what? What am I, Tony? Thunder Bay. <laughs> yes, the twisted spine of Thunder Bay. What is the hunchback of Notre Dame? He's this guy in France who has a hunchback because he was born to a gypsy. Um, because he was born to a gypsy? I don't know. Some, I, I, I don't know. What, what, what is the hunchback of Notre Dame to you, Tony? I just I don't know if, I don't know if because is fair. <laughs> like all gypsy babies are hunchbacks. No, I mean, but it, there's probably like a genetic component. What is a gypsy? I, I just it, a gypsy is just a name for a poor person. So people are genetically poor. I don't know where you're going. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. I, I I don't know. I said some. I didn't mean to. Attribute hunchbackness to gypsiness. Oh, no, that's fair. I, that's fair. You made a mistake, but it felt like you were like trying to tell me otherwise. Maybe she had birth complications because she lived in unsanitary conditions. I bet you the number of times she's snorted her disappearing smoke has probably affected her ability to have children properly. <laughs> what the fuck? Right. <laughs> Yeah, this is a strange episode. Like gypsy magic can't be good for a person. Yeah, it's got it. There's there must be some kind of uh, amphetamine in gypsy powder. Did you know that Quasimodo means half formed? Yes, that makes me wonder if it was ever a clinical term for someone with cerebral palsy. You would be a good Quasimodo. I am. So yeah, I just said I'm the twisted back of Thunderdome. Thunderdome. Okay, so here's my synopsis in 20 seconds. Okay. Gypsy lady has a baby. Angry man doesn't like gypsies. Destroys all the gypsies. Accidentally kills gypsy baby's mom. And decides he has to be gypsy baby's baby daddy. So he hides gypsy baby's baby in a church. And becomes secret gypsy baby (laughs) daddy. He should have church. And ends up. Teaching Gypsy Baby alphabet, Gypsy Baby becomes Quasimodo and wants to be where the people are. And so he goes to a festival, gets ridiculed for his humpback, falls in love with Ezreal the Gypsy. Mr. Froyo, frozen yogurt man, decides that he is also in love with Gypsy Baby, Mama Baby, Ezreal <laughs> He's not as he's not in love. It's just that he's repressed, and his loins are stirred, and he's learned to associate all forms of pleasure and joy with a kind of Catholic guilt. And so he, he's a fourteen eighties nice guy. I I suppose so. He's like repressed, mad at all the chads of the world, aka non-religious folk. Mm-hmm. And Esmeralda makes his penis twitch a bit. And he's like, you either be with me or I destroy you. Yeah. And she rejects him and tries to murder him. So then he goes on a crusade to wipe the world of gypsies. Yeah. 
there's a kind of like weird through line of like class warfare and like the judge that's his name judge froyo is a member of high society he seems to wield the power of the state to try to oppress the common man and so he does this when a gypsy woman esmeralda denies his advances and uh, when he can't command the respect of the people let's talk about the love story in this movie there isn't one that I want to talk about. I think we have to, no? Can we can we first play the scene of Froyo and Hunchback reciting the alphabet? I'll stroll down those stairs. Yeah, I'll march through the doors and Good morning, Quasimodo. Oh good morning, Master. Dear boy. Whomever are you talking to? My friends. I see. And what are your friends made of, Quasimodo? Stone. Can stone talk? No, it can't. That's right. You're a smart lad. Now, lunch. Shall we review your alphabet today? Oh, yes, Master. I would like that very much. Very well. A. Abomination. B. Blasphemy. C. Contrition. D. Damnation. E. Eternal damnation. Good. F. Festival. (coughs) Excuse me. Forgiveness. You said festival. No! You are thinking about going to the festival. It's just that you go every year. I am a public official. I must go. And it's like um, Froyo uh, has been training the hunchback to be constantly thinking about the perverseness of his own deformities and the limitations of them. And he's confined this man to this church because he doesn't, because he's kind of locking him away from public view. He doesn't want people to know that he murdered the hunchback's mother, but he also like the hunchback is easy to manage in this environment and it's suitable to him. And so he wants him to stay. Um, and like that clip is just sort of a uh, uh, look into his social conditioning to kind of, he's being trained to feel helpless and to think of himself as wrong innately. And like, that's quite powerful. He is yoked, though. He's very physically apt. He's got a whole lot of agility. He can climb better than Tom Cruise in a modern Mission Impossible movie. I mean, yeah, he's quite talented and empathetic and interesting. Did you relate to this character? I did. Um, I related to to his sense of isolation, to his desire to live vicariously through members of his community. He keeps like uh, figurines and dioramas of the town, much like the Elephant Man, actually. He's got a to scale reconstruction of his town hall, which he surveys from the bell tower. And uh, he's got models for every member of the community that he sort of tracks throughout the day. And he just sort of spends his days looking over his world and not really having a life. And at the start of the movie, he finds the confidence to attend the, the annual festival of the town where people get together and sing and dance. And so yeah, I relate to the the entire like first act of this movie is quite good at establishing Quasimodo's 
emotional intelligence and his isolation and pain and stuff. And his guardian is suitably evil. And he's got this this nuance in his perpetual guilt and shame and how he defers it onto other people and takes no responsibility for his own cruelty. Uh, there's a clip or one of the lyrics that says that uh, the Judge Froyo has such an eye for maintaining order and civility and and for punishing sin, yet he neglects to look for that within or whatever. Judge Claude Frollo longed to purge the world of vice and sin. And he saw corruption everywhere except within. Bring these gypsy vermin to the palace of justice. You there! What are you hiding? Stolen goods, no doubt. Take them from her. She ran. And these solemn lyrics are super fun to sing. Like that kind of shit is pretty cool. I I enjoy that. And I like how Disney takes these like ostensibly simple character archetypes and imbues them with complexity in the sort of like visual design of the characters and in their expressiveness and everything else. This is what we kind of talked about with Little Mermaid as well. Disney's ability to boil a, a story down to its, its essence and to communicate things to children in an effective, like a super effective, interesting way. But I do think this movie kind of loses its way in the second and third act. Kind of the whole time we were watching it, I was comparing it to The Little Mermaid because I wanted it to be as compelling as The Little Mermaid because it should be. It's a very similar story, Mm -hmm. like someone in a world that they don't feel like they belong in wants to break free and become part of regular society. And the interesting thing is, too, I think it's one of the only um, like 90s classical Disney characters that is specifically uh, drawn or designed to be ugly or unappealing. Like he is asymmetrical by design. The hump is not in the center of his like body mass and his face is constantly contorted. He doesn't have straight teeth. He's like he's kind of traditionally not handsome. By Disney standards. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, he has a severe case of scoliosis. I can relate. Yeah, me too. Scoliosis sucks. Right now there's a pain uh, to the right of my breastplate, like just under my rib. And it's like searing. And I can do stretches and things to alleviate it. But my traditional forms of exercise only exacerbate it. And sometimes... It can get so bad, like a three or four on the on a measure of one to ten, that I don't want to have friends over and I don't want to go out if I'm feeling it. What's happening with that uh, wheelchair of yours, with the car seat? Oh yeah, this is something that I was afraid you're going to bring up. Why? You were so proud of it. I it's pretty cool, but it's a prototype. But it was like an idea that my uncle has been floating around for quite some time and he wants me to integrate. Basically, it's a an old chair from a junkyard in Thunder Bay that my uncle retrieved. Why, why are you saying it, this whole thing with such shame? Mm. Like you're looking down to the floor when you say this. I don't know. Maybe I have some sort of innate power chair shame. 
what do you mean? Like you forget that you're in a power chair or that this is somehow more of a power chair than your power chair? When I was a kid, my parents used to say that I still use a walker and now I no longer use a walker. So you feel that adding a car seat to a power chair means you're more disabled? Sometimes I feel that for ableist parents, saying that their disabled child still walks is like other parents saying that their kid is an engineer or a doctor. Yeah, I know. I totally get that. But I'm trying to figure out, like, are you more ashamed of this car seat wheelchair than your own current wheelchair? Uh, well, this car seat wheelchair is more comfortable and accommodating than my expensive, like, fitted wheelchair. So, no. So, it's just a general shame about being excited about a wheelchair. I guess so. Or, like, that I need a chair that is a car seat because of how incredibly comfortable car seats are. Why is that a bad thing, though? I don't understand. I don't know. I feel like it should be the inverse. Like, my wheelchair is custom molded to my quasi-motor back. Yeah. You're just sitting in a car seat. That feels easier to normalize than a a custom-fitted chair. But it's an evolution of my needs. Like, the the necessity of this chair is a progression of my disability. Interesting. I don't know. Like, I get it because it, like, chronologically, it's an evolution of your needs. But ergonomically, isn't your current wheelchair more evolved for your needs than a car seat? No, my current wheelchair fucking sucks for ergonomics. Like it's it's a it's a non stretch back, and they didn't really like. I didn't get a custom backrest for my particular type of scoliosis. And you think this car seat will be better for your? scoliosis i can tell just by sitting in it for 20 minutes that it's better for my back so isn't that a good thing though yes tony but as i said like there's if i could completely unpack my guilt surrounding new equipment that represent an evolution of my disability then we probably wouldn't have a podcast (laughs) fair enough (laughs) so you, you you don't want to talk about this new chair? No, I do. I'll, I was I was in the middle of kind of explaining what it is because you asked me what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my uncle found a, the base of a power chair in a junkyard and he's like, I wonder if I could make a chair with proper lump su- lumbar support for James because he calls me James. And so he like he started coming over and looking at power the two power chairs that I own and it, how the batteries work and the, the different Uh, joysticks and their protocols he started researching ways of modifying the joysticks or you know detaching the cabs from chairs and installing a bucket seat so it took him about six months or so but he eventually figured out how to get a vehicle bucket seat onto an old chair and then he figured out how to um, transport the batteries from my old 2009 Invacare power chair uh, to this new one which is about 50 pounds heavier, but still usable in a limited capacity. And so he made this prototype. And now what we want to do is try to install the bucket seat on one of my old chairs instead of the junkyard one, because um, that would be even more useful. 
and eventually maybe we'll get to a point where I can actually bring this thing out in public or maybe it can be a chair that I just leave at my workplace or some place that I've, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I can have options for comfort, uh, which is really, really cool. And I'm excited to get to the point where I can actually assist them because what we want to do is remove the controls on the bucket seat and embed them in the um, in the joystick as part of the software. And that's when I will actually be able to say that I contributed to the building of the chair. But so far, I've just like nodded at Uncle Michael and given him permission to work with my old hardware. Well, I'm sure you also gave him ideas. I guess so. But I like we've said before, I don't really have a mind for hardware. I don't know what the fuck is going on. And he like has experience in electrical engineering and all kinds of stuff. He's just a jack of all trades and a very curious and uh, hardworking person. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's a blessing that not many people in my position have someone like him in their corner. Very true. Do you think that you could use like a an office chair, like a really good ergonomic office chair, and just put the seat on a wheelchair? Maybe, but this bucket seat Tony is so fucking comfy. Yeah. Oh man, it's like it's like it's indestructible, and it's just like it hugs me, and it just it reminds me what it feels like to sit and not have to think or devote a thread of thought to some ongoing and continuous back pain. Isn't it bizarre that your uncle got closer to that goal than any OT you've ever worked with? <laughs> no, not at all, especially if you've had a number of OTs in your life. Shout out to all the OTs out there. <laughs> <laughs> OTs feel like the gym teachers that you ha- had in high school who were actually like failed guidance counselors and just like decided to take on gym. Does that make sense? Yeah, I... The the older I get and the more I work with them, I I sort of empathize a bit more. Of course. Because not only is it obviously an impossible task to fully meet the needs one-off every single time when there are just so many products available to you that aren't designed. you You can't make a seat cushion that's meant to be used one time. You have to make a market. But then the other thing is actually funding these projects yeah. is next to impossible, especially when you're working on shoestring welfare and like, you know, Canadian healthcare guidelines that limit your options. To be a just like to be a fully accommodated disabled person, you almost have to be like a narcissistic entrepreneur. And all of your entrepreneurial skills are need to be devoted to your specific overwhelming needs. The number of times I've thought about how I would use my millions just to have like my own attendance. Like it wouldn't be like a yacht. It would be an attendant that I can bring around and maybe like a nice chair that can get me through winters. Mm-hmm. If, if you started McAuliffe Industries... Like your your like company's motto would be like one Tony served. It's just myself. <laughs> yeah, because I I would never feel done. I it would just I would just keep pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. But that's probably what your chair project is going to be like, where you're just gonna get it onto the new seat, and then you're gonna figure out how to add 
like an actuator to raise it up and then you're gonna add tilt and then you're gonna add recline you know you're just gonna keep up in the ante because why why not well projects like this are meant to you're not necessarily focused entirely on the end product you're focused on building confidence in your ability to modify your equipment so it's it's like a it's like a growth and confidence exercise more so than like I'm going to have a chair that perfectly serves my needs. It just opens you up to the idea that you're not helpless in the administration of your own mobility equipment, yeah. which is an idea that is completely unheard of for most wheelies, I think. Yesterday, I had someone come in to adjust the sensitivity of my joystick because my hand is getting weaker and it's harder for me to like push the joystick as far as I need to to get it to go like full speed, for example, uh-huh. or even just to get it to move. Yeah. I see the smirk on your face. Are you about to make a joystick joke? No. You sure are. No. Is it going to be to the tune of Bill Withers? No, but it's just like, no, never mind. I'm sorry. Go on. Sing it. No. You want to. No. You want it. It'd just be funny if like, if they came to adjust your joystick and you were like, mm-hmm. does it have to be my chair joystick every time? Cut it. Well, what is it? See, you know, I didn't have enough time, so I was smirking while it, <laughs> the wheels were spinning. Uh-huh. Uh, we're really going to have to pull this episode out from the depths of despair. And Why do you think so poorly of us? I don't. Yeah, but anyway, so he was adjusting my joystick and... It was kind of that moment where I did get it to a place where I wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not complaining about that. But I, I also had the thought, like, imagine if I had someone like this just constantly at my disposal so that I could be like, hey, let me tweak it again. Or like you said, like an OT or something that's just constantly in your corner or like your uncle who when your resources are unlimited, basically, your possibilities are also unlimited. The number of times I have to go to like a seating appointment and just be like, all right, well, we've been here for an hour and a half. So I guess this is as good as we can let it be right now, even though I want to just keep getting it closer and closer to perfection. To adjust just the backrest on my current chair that is supposedly fitted and optimal, optimized for my needs, I have to book an appointment with an OT and a technician. And they have to come over and use a specific kind of Allen wrench to loosen the back yeah. and like tilt it. And you're like, what the fuck is this? I've just started doing it myself. Like I'll, I have Allen keys and I'll just find an attendant who's willing to go along with it and... As long as I act like I know exactly what to do and they're just helping me with the physical part, yeah, they'll do it. Like I've had people tighten a wheel that's starting to come loose uh-huh. just because I'm like, I don't want to wait three days and not go outside. It's so funny. Like you get like in trouble with tw- like left Twitter because you're grooming people to be your <laughs> power chair technicians. Yeah, like they'll come in to cook me dinner. I'll be like, before you cook that, let me see you use an Allen wrench. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see you got some good knife skills. How's your Phillips head? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like 
testimonials of them saying that they're deeply uncomfortable using certain tools without, you know, formal training. Do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm very conscious of like, like I asked someone to change my light bulb yesterday, which obviously isn't a crazy task. How many attendants is it to change the light? But it was in a fixture that needed to be unscrewed. And part of me was like, am I, am I crossing the line here? Like, who am I, who is the right person to ask? Because also there are so many things that I would love to be, to just do myself. We've talked about this, how I love DIY stuff. Yeah, like you would, I mean, this is what we were saying before. If you were able-bodied, you just spend all your time like loving the small moments of being able to change your own light bulbs. Yeah, I have some new curtains that I haven't put up and I've had them for like six weeks because I just haven't, I've been like, ah, it feels like too much stuff. You'd be writing like soulful ballads, Bill Withers style, about changing your curtains. Yeah, that's a parody I can get behind. Yeah. I'm going to sit in silence until you sing it. Ain't no sunshine in my house, cause I just installed curtains. And the sun has gone away, away, away. Mm, mm, mm. How can you not love Bill Withers? <laughs> yeah. He's so good. Whether it's about balls or curtains, it's great. No, see, I still I still can't get behind the Bill Withers balls thing. I'm Paul Withers. Ball Withers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a condition you get in your 50s. <laughs> Ball Withers. Yeah. Go to the doctor like, hey, doc, something's just not right down there. Sorry, son. Looks like you got the ball with us. It's when what happens when you don't get enough vitamin D on your balls. When was the last time your balls saw vitamin D? Oh, geez. Never? Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. <laughs> no, you weren't. I don't know if my balls have ever seen sunlight. <laughs> we should probably talk about this movie a little more. I, I was going to say, do you want to know why I didn't like the movie? Okay, yeah, tell me. I think the movie uh, does a way better job of illustrating Quasimodo's like oppression and his pain and his internalized like ugliness than it does showing the arc of coming out of that oppression. So I think the movie thinks that he's ugly and doesn't know actually how to address it properly. I always, I'm always interested by your the movie thinks it takes. Because I never think the movie is thinking. But <laughs> you're always thinking about what the movie is thinking about. Well, because, yeah, I am. You're right. No, there's a, there, you should probably be doing that. I should probably be doing that. But I just don't. In the, in the song where, okay, first of all, Quasimodo's friends are inanimate objects. They're, they're statues. Are they inanimate? Do you believe... That, like, I was trying to figure that out. Are they animate for the sake of the internal monologue he has with them? Or are they actually, like, magically infused Toy Story-esque characters? I, I don't know, but the movie, more times than not, seems to suggest that they are only animate through the eyes of the hunchback. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Um, because in all kinds of other Disney movies, whether it's... 
The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. Like there are objects in these movies that have some kind of sentience or consciousness and personhood. I forget what that word is when when an inanimate object is given person qualities. Anthropomorphism. Yeah. So there's all kinds of anthropomorphic everyday objects in Disney movies. And yet this is the only one that suggests that the main character is hallucinating them. I think it's maybe alluding a little bit to mental health issues because no one else interacts with the gargoyles. Well, I think it might also just be like, you know, you've had imaginary friends before, right? Yeah. Have you? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid. Tell me more. I used to have this imaginary friend named Tony who tried to persuade me to make a podcast. Imagine this whole time you were doing a podcast on your own. Yeah, like single channel audio. Yeah. Yeah. And every episode has just been you talking to yourself. Just laughing maniacally at jokes that nobody said. If that were the case, like no episode would ever get published because I'm not a very timely or efficient worker. What do you mean? We record every week. I know, but like if you are not here, you're very essential to the production of this podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, you could figure out how to edit. I could. And then the rest is just uploading. You could figure it out. Yes, that's neither here nor there, though. I'm just saying that... Well, where is it? Quasimodo, like, isn't really given a fair shake. His anthropomorphic friends are the product of a potential mental illness, whereas non-ugly Disney superheroes are totally sane in their talking to a carpet or a lamp. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Well, I guess I wasn't thinking about that because part of me was just living in the disbelief or living in the belief that they were actually moving around. Because then what happens, I guess we don't have to get crazy with it, but <laughs> like at the end, when they're helping him fight, is he just doing all that himself? They they don't help him fight. They're like spitting lava and machine guns and stuff. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, again, it... It could be like Fight Club kind of thing. Right. No one ever really acknowledges them. And in the final scene, like, the villain ends up um, sword fighting with Quasi and his girlfriend uh, while clinging to a gargoyle. And the gargoyle overheats from the flames of a fire down below. And it's like it's portrayed as like a dragon, like breathing fire onto the villain. But again, it seems to be a product of imagination. Yeah. I think the part that upset me the most was the romance where Quasimodo just happily got sidelined. He did. Yeah. His attraction to Esmeralda is sort of equated to a kind of um, a pining for a maternal figure because his mother was a gypsy. Really? I never felt that. Because I think if I felt that, then it would have felt inappropriate for them to be together. Well, I think the movie thinks it's inappropriate for them to be together, which is why Esmeralda ends up paired with a more traditional uh, dashing soldier type. Yeah, I thought for sure, because he was so traditionally like textbook perfect for her, he would have 
messed up in some personality ways that Quasimodo would have been able to make up for. But I also realize I'm just projecting. For sure. But the other thing is that um, <clears throat> Esmeralda Suter is also a police officer. So he's like a violence-sanctioned agent of the state. So he's like politically opposed to her. So she shouldn't necessarily be drawn to him, even though he eventually does decide he he eventually does revolt against Froyo. He still believes in the importance of like law and order, which is in direct opposition to a gypsy lifestyle, so to speak. So the movie brings those two together because he's like an aesthetic equivalent to her rather than put her with Quasimodo because the two, their designs from like an animation point of view don't seem to fit together even. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's, it's disappointing that the movie doesn't give um, Quasimodo a romantic interest and that he ends up being kind of somebody who merely facilitates the romance for Esmeralda. I'm glad you agree with that. Because I was obviously thinking the same thing, but I was self-conscious that I was projecting too hard onto the movie. The other thing is that more than any other Disney film that I've seen, Quasimodo appears to share uh, main character duty with Esmeralda, which is fine, but it feels almost like the only reason that that is the case is because maybe the movie was afraid of making him the main character interesting i never felt that he did feel like the main character to me but you would you agree that esmeralda and quasimodo have the same amount of screen time if you really think about it is esmeralda ever on screen when he isn't Mm, yes there's a number of times when she's fleeing from law enforcement or when she's dancing at the festival a couple of times when she's first at the cathedral exploring okay i don't know i don't think she gets any musical numbers without quasimodo i forget yeah she's definitely right up there with him mm-hmm. yeah the love story and this is frustrating but again i feel like i'm projecting my disability insecurities on it well i think it's part and parcel of the movie's inability to like convince us that quasimodo has graduated from his internalized ugliness barely though even that is weak because it's like five seconds at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. he comes out of the cathedral and a little girl's like oh let me touch your face and then she's like oh i didn't get a big eye and a saggy back so i'm fine and then the movie kind of just ends Mm -hmm. he doesn't there's no scene where like quasimodo is involved with society and plays like a some kind of it would have been cool if there was a shot of him you know using his jacked arms to help rebuild the city or something like he was somehow a part of the city rather than just oh you're not a monster even a scene where he um like the scene where they discover the underground gypsy tunnels yeah. and maybe he he gets a moment to mingle with the community and like maybe there are pictures of his parents in the area or people who knew his parents. And so he gets a glimpse at his familial background and there's a suggestion that he has 
friends to make and of a future once the credits roll. But there's even a musical number where Quasi's imaginary friends uh, sing him uh, a, a love song to motivate him to pursue Esmeralda. And the content of the song, like the words that they use to try to bolster him, are incredibly superficial. They also repeatedly assert that he's ugly. <laughs> yeah, work, work out for the line here where Jason Alexander tells him he looks like a croissant. No shit. Those other guys that she could dangle all look the same from every boring point of view. You're a surprise from every angle. Manja above, she's gotta love a guy like you. A guy like you gets extra credit because it's true you've got a certain something more. You're racist, kid. You see that face? You don't forget it. Want something new? That's you. For sure. We all have gaped at some Adonis. But then we crave a meal more nourishing to chew. And since your shape like a croissant is, no question of she's got to love a guy like you. Like, there's no lyrics about um, what non-superficial love and affection actually might be. That Basically, the message of the song is that ugliness is novel and that's a breath of fresh air from traditional handsomeness it's like kind of silly it's it seems like the kind of song that would be sung to convince a producer that philip seymour hoffman should take a leading role in a movie in 2005 it's like really stupid and uh there's no exploration of what handsome or sexy is outside of a symmetrical body which is basically just a missed opportunity not only that, but Quasi doesn't get a chance to practice love and affection. You know, not that he's entitled to Esmeralda, but the movie could have created a love interest for him. Yeah. I guess on the flip side, I don't even really believe what I'm about to say. But on the flip side, I guess if they did do that, maybe it would have felt forced. I think it would have been hard to do that. It would have been hard to do that. It would have been work. Do you, do you felt like this film was lazy? No. From a production point of view, it certainly wasn't. I think the first act was fairly good, convincing, interesting. There's a number of great shots in this film, like continuous takes. The opening shot is amazing. Yeah. Like the diffused lighting um, coming in the bell towers and illuminating Quasi's like domain we also watched the remastered version oh it was remastered yeah but it was beautiful it's gorgeous and like i was thinking about how they did that like how they do those crazy shots that go from the top of a bell tower all the way down to the city below and then the scene continues from there it's like how humongous was the map painting of the of the setting for them to be able to achieve that in 1996. In 1996, yeah. And there's some CGI, I think, but it's incredibly subtle. Like, it's really hard to spot. And that's a, those are two different special effects that are difficult to meld, you know, traditional animation and CGI. 
without it seeming like a kind of weird multimedia flex that doesn't really gel together. Well, it's also Disney, so they're, they've always kind of been at the cutting edge of all that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, music as a musical, the movie's sort of forgettable, obviously. Yeah. I guess, like, in, in listening to the clips, you kind of want to sing the songs they're singing. But, the, and maybe it's just because I didn't have this movie drilled into my brain at a young age. I don't think so, because I also remember watching this movie a bunch as a kid. Mm-hmm. And there were there were definitely times where we were watching it and a song would come up and I would remember the song, but not enough to be able to sing along. Yeah, plus every Disney movie, you kind of remember a lot of the anthropomorphic sidekicks, like Abu and the and the magic carpet and um, the the uh, candle from Beauty and the Beast and uh, what's his name. The dragon in Mulan. Yeah, the the clam. What the what the hell is his name? Sebastian. Sebastian, thank you. Or crab. Yeah, I'm disproving my point. I'm disproving my point and not remembering his name. But anyway, the anthropomorphic characters in most Disney movies are extremely memorable. Yeah. And I I fucking totally forgot that Jason Alexander was ever a little gargoyle. In a Disney movie, by the way, my mom is sneaking down the ramp in order to steal junk food. No, I'm not just talking to Anthony. We're actually formally recording right now. <laughs> What's up? Come come say hi. We've always wanted you to be our guest on the podcast. Anthony wants to have an episode of the podcast where I'm not actually on it, and he exclusively interviews you, Ma. No, you can be on it. I guess I could, but it would be potentially embarrassing. Yeah, that's why I want you on it. Yeah, my mother is unflinching. I, but can you please correct yourself so your mom knows that I want you and her both on it? Maybe. I'll correct it later when we're off the air. No, 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 no. We'll have to include it because it's quite candid. Yeah, we're keeping this in. I'm sorry, Ma. We have to keep it. You have no choice. Did you get your cheesies? The cheesies you came down here for? <laughs> They're not here. I already well, I thought if I didn't put them here, then you wouldn't be persuaded to come down. See? No, actually, I came down to make sure the door was locked so you would be safe. Oh. I was thinking of you. Oh, she I was see. thinking about you, Jamie. It was nice talking to you. Bye. Can't wait to have you on. Did you hear what she said? She's, she said you're the most respectful. She didn't say that. She did. She did. You didn't, didn't Why? I didn't good. even do anything respectful. Well, she likes when you sing about Bill Withers. Yeah, see? She knows. She was probably listening to the podcast and realized that I stopped you from doing a Bill Withers Balls, Ball Withers parody. <laughs> and she was like, that's respect. <laughs> that's a promising young man right there. Yeah. That's a guy who has his priorities straight. <laughs> Doesn't always hear the word joystick and think something else. I think that to live a life fully, you have to leverage every opportunity for a dick joke. Is that what you think? I think we should. I'm going to turn that into one of those inspirational quotes and make that an Instagram post on our account. (laughs) You really should. I'm going to. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this movie, to be honest. Like, it it didn't really make me feel much. Like, especially much to talk about for the podcast there was i feel like if you charted like a brain graph while i was watching this movie it would be 
minimal activity all the way through, and then slight spikes anytime I heard Jason Alexander's voice, and then a slightly higher spike when they started singing, and then a rage spike when Esmeralda chose Dweeb or whatever his name was. Yeah, Phoebus, yeah. In other words, Ken Doll, number 42, yeah. voiced rather uninterestingly by Kel- Kevin Klein, who is typically someone naturally animated and clever. He's literally like a piece of bread in this fucking movie. Yeah. So yeah, it is super disappointing. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm over it. Esmeralda is also voiced by Demi Moore, and I had no idea it was Demi Moore because she doesn't really have an identifiable voice personally for me and so it kind of the whole trend in disney of casting well or like well-known actors for voice roles is kind of mute if you can't figure out who the fuck it is by the sound of their voice yeah you know what i mean and that probably increases the movie's budget by like tens of millions if not more so just cast somebody who's good at voice acting yeah but also the name brings people to the seats Sure. Does it really? Like, was Demi Moore that big a deal in 96? Look at what they did for the new Lion King. They just jam-packed it with every name they could think of. Yeah, they're like, in lieu of animation and actual interesting uh, three-dimensional models, we'll just have iconic voice actors and it'll be yeah. fine. It's like It's like if they just decided to replace uh, the planet earth David Attenborough voiceover with fucking Billy from the street or whatever. I would love to hear Billy Eichner from the street do a planet earth voiceover. <laughs> the entire thing. That would be so good. Actually, that's, that's, I, that was a bad example on my part because he is a hilarious and fascinating guy. He's Billy on the street. He is. I, I was always sad that parks and recreation could never fully harness what makes him so funny i think he's better in small doses though yeah he's better when he can overreact to people's pop cultural ignorance any billy on the street fans out there need to watch a difficult people it's one of the most uh like uproariously funny comedies of the last 10 years and it also predicted a lot of the um uh, recent me too scandals yeah he's super insightful because well he's also just not afraid to say what he's He's so spontaneous with his humor. Mm-hmm. Explosive. Yeah, it's so good. I would love to watch him do Planet Earth. <laughs> He's getting <laughs> angry at like how birds try to show off to other birds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I feel like I didn't really say much about the movie, but I think you said everything I was thinking, which wasn't that much, to be honest. I think you had a minimal reaction to the film because it did very little with its own premise. Yeah. I wish, I think that if this movie were made today by Pixar, it would have a lot more insight on um, coping with disability. I sure hope so. I, I really hope so as well. I'm, I'm really excited for the first uh, Pixar film with a wheelie. There is uh, an amputee in one of the newest ones. Oh, would a wheelie Pixar film be called Joystick Story? Well, then if you made it, it would just be a porno. No. Yeah. Stop making me tr- sound like a pervert. Every, let's go back and pull. <laughs> Every time I've mentioned a joystick and you're making 
a dick joke. I bet you it's a one-to-one ratio. For sure there is. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Oh, well. No, there's nothing wrong with it. But just acknowledge your inner joystick proof. It's fine. But acknowledge it. Do you, did you think of a wheel breaker this week? Because I kind of didn't. I didn't. Do you want to skip it this week? Or do you want to think of one on the fly? Let's see if I can think of one. It's it's a... Uh... Wheel breakers. I have one. Okay. Wait, maybe this isn't funny. That never stops me. <laughs> I have one. Okay. Okay, you get to be 100% able-bodied, but everyone in your life who isn't a close personal friend thinks your close personal friends are imaginary. I don't think that would bother me. Like, just random people are like, oh, you have imaginary friends? I'm like, okay. No, like your coworkers, your parents. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe even your romantic partner. They're pretty sure. Wait, my romantic partner wouldn't be a close friend. Well, of course they would, but... For the wheel breaker to be interesting, I have to suggest that they think that your close friends are imaginary. Like, they they don't actually believe you until your wedding day. What if it's that all of your friends think they're your only friend? <laughs> That's funny, too. Yeah, because then you're just like, no, I swear I have other friends. But you, like, can't have them around because you can't, you can't prove them wrong. You're not allowed. Yeah. So you're constantly like, no, I... I do have other friends. It's just when I'm hanging out with you, I can only I only hang out with you. And they're like, yeah, but you're only ever hanging out with me. It's like, no, and I'm not with you. I'm with my other friends. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, that, that could be fun. Yeah, and you're like, if only I had a wheelchair, I could prove it to you, but I don't want to sit in one. And then they're like, excuse me? And then they're like, I think you need antipsychotics. As soon as you sit in a wheelchair, all your friends appear. <laughs> They all knock on your door simultaneously? Yeah. I would not take the deal. Because I don't really... I prefer, like, small groups. Like, one-on-one is fine for, like, dates. But I also like social gatherings a lot. Like, I love hosting and, like, throwing a, a little get-together. And it, it, it's weird to, to be, like, invite my friend over and be like, I made homemade hummus with all these chips here for you. But whereas like a group, it's easier to, I don't know, there's something in me that likes socializing with larger than one group of people Mm. or one person. Would I rather be disabled though? I don't even know what I would do for work anymore. My work is so disability focused. (laughs) I have like a whole script I go through in my mind about how my job is because I'm disabled. What? And if I was able-bodied tomorrow, I'd, I'd, like, I couldn't, I'd have to quit my job immediately. <laughs> that's, so, that's so dumb. And it would be like when someone says, yeah, I broke my leg, so I know what it's like to be disabled. It would feel the same if I was like, I used to be disabled, so I get it. This is really dumb, Tony. You're saying you want to keep your disability because otherwise you'd feel like a fraud and you'd be unemployed yeah. i'd have to get a able-bodied job I, there are some able-bodied jobs that i would love to do just to be able to say look i'm doing this i'd probably be a flight attendant yeah that would be so cool yeah i always thought it would be cool to like 
bus tables at a bar or like be behind a bar for like one day a week. Yeah, that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Be a bartender. Yeah, or like to be one of those like people that work around like pretentious downtown markets and like pull those horse trolleys, but they're just like really good athletes. No, you've lost me. That doesn't sound fun. That'd be a fun source of fitness. And just pull a bunch of lazy drunk people around. Yeah, you'd probably meet like quite a few women doing that because they'd be like, this guy must be fit. <laughs> I guess. I haven't really thought about what job I would get to pick up women. I think being a flight attendant would be cool. Just being able to travel. And also you're still sort of in like a customer facing job. I'd be a fucking paper boy if I were able-bodied just because I missed out on it as a kid. Really? What do you think you missed out on? Because I like biking and I just bike around. I get my daily dose of exercise plus all the boomers would get their papers. Okay. I'll leave that one for you. Okay. Would you go to the gym? Maybe not. I just bike. Yeah. I would work out. I would do like hikes and practical training, but I don't think I would do gym workouts. I'd go to a rehab gym if I was injured, but that's it. I would move immediately. I'd go to a Jeff gym because he's like, we only do the exercises that make sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's a cool idea. Yeah. He doesn't do like machines. He does like functional fitness. Yeah. He's he's not like, I will help you grow your muscles in proportion to your shrunken ego. Yeah, he's like, I'll help you be healthy. Yeah. Yeah, so I I don't think I would take it. No? Because you need to have four friends in a room? Yeah. (laughs) You weirdo. And a disabled job. (laughs) That's so so strange. Your sense of self right now is just cute, Tony. I'm sorry to say. You would be fine with only ever seeing one person at a time? I'm a recluse since I turned 30. I don't give a fuck. Like, I mean, it would be fine if it was mostly one person at a time, but never. Like, you wouldn't even be able to go to a wedding. Weddings are lame. Weddings are fun. Big, expensive parties that are celebrating a thing that will probably... You're describing a great time. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I'd rather put a down payment on a house. Than go to a wedding? No, than, like, have a wedding. There is a Netflix show called Marriage or Mortgage. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Mortgage. That's my answer. Yeah, me too, probably. But, um, okay, what's my real breakdown? Okay, I'm going to make you fully able-bodied. Mm-hmm. And the best part is you can go and have that wedding because I'm going to pay for your mortgage for you. And where you're going to live is in the very top of a very tall cathedral with no elevators. What? So it's like eight eight stories. Okay. Let's go 10 stories. And what, I have to free climb up it every day because there are no stairs? There are stairs. There's just no elevator. Do I have a hunchback? No, you're fully able-bodied. You have the body of your dreams. But also, like, good luck getting your friends to come over all the time because it's, like, at the top of a... 10 stories. Do I have to ring the bell all throughout the day? Yeah, that's just even natural duties as part of your job. Do I have to help gypsies get laid by cops? You don't have to help, but it might happen. (laughs) And I'll be sad? You'll probably be sad. My original one was going to be 
you have to set up all the people you're interested in with other people. <laughs> but I was like, that's so depressing. What if I don't realize I'm interested in them until after we already hooked up? Whoa. Yeah, but then you can't hook up again. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Joysticks. <laughs> okay, well, that this is a weird one. Basically, I get to be able-bodied, but I have to climb every day. Yeah, but imagine like going to the bar. Let's say you get that job as a bartender and you pick up a girl at the end of the night and you're like, hey, you want to come back to my place? And then you have to explain your place is the top of a church. And I have to, she has to get on my back and I have to climb her up there every day. Or you convince her to climb up these 10 flights of stairs just so she can see your diorama of the city. Jeez, this is a weird one. I guess my question is, would you be the hunchback of Notre Dame if you didn't have a hunchback, but you still had to live where he lived, live his life, but you had a, quote, normal body? Is my landlord... Uh, Mr. Frozen Yogurt? Catholic, full of Catholic guilt? Um, no, it's your actual mom. This is weird. I do it. I just do have it? to meet someone who's a fan of climbing. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, your criteria for... What interests you in a woman would probably change. Yeah. You'd be like, you're funny, but do you like stairs? And none of my friends could be lazy. They don't, and oh, oh, I couldn't have disabled friends. Oh, shit. That's true. Oh, shit. That's very, I didn't even think about that. What would you do? I guess you could try to carry me up a flight of 10 stairs. 10 flights of stairs. Yeah, or I could like manufacture a pulley system. Yeah, like the dog in rear window. We could just hang out at the festival. <laughs> yeah, but I can't go to the festival because I can only be in groups of one. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it'll be that hard. This is a strange episode. It is really strange. All over the place. It's very nebulous. Yeah. Maybe it'll come out in the edit. Yeah, we might have to do some work in the edit for sure. For sure. These fuckers don't even know how much work we do to try to seem competent. <laughs> <laughs> like both as disabled people living our lives and as podcasters. All right. So, you know how it goes when we're about to end it. Yeah. Do you have any inspirational quotes? No. Fuck off, everyone. Go have, go, go enjoy your lives. Podcast is over. Until next time. Yep. Tell us what movie to watch next. Please do. Especially classic cinema, like silver screen stuff. I'm going to shut that out. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.